Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Magnus Strom, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here and be speaking to you tonight. Ah, it's great to have you here. Based in New Forest, UK, Magnus founded Strom Architects in 2010 and is responsible for developing the vision of the practice and leading design of the projects. Magnus has an avid interest in houses and homes, as well as interior and furniture design, which was developed as a child growing up in Sweden, being surrounded by and brought up in modern houses. He was fascinated by their beauty and how design was part of daily life. And when asked as a child what he wanted to be when he grew up, the answer was easy. He would say, I want to be an architect. So Magnus, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm interested in the type of work you do, where you work, the type of clients you do, the business that you've built. Let's talk about all of that. Let's start with your origin story. Go back to when you discovered your passion for architecture and maybe who or what inspired you to get started. Okay. Well, well, thank you. I think you summed it up fairly well there in many ways. Obviously, I grew up in Sweden. I think all of the Scandinavian countries, are they accepted modernism in a really big way and it became part of life and it was part of creating a better society for all it was part of how design could influence our houses and our schools and public swimming pools or you have it so i always remember you know 
going to the swimming pool and it was designed a beautiful modernist building designed in the 50s, for example. And you always had that. And I think that's very different, at least to the UK, where the design was something that was almost elitist, but there it was commonplace and it was all for to make life better, really. And both my parents were always interested in architecture and design. I think they were both frustrated architects at heart. And they never became architects, but they always had an interest. So, you know, you grew up in houses that are modern and grew up in our 40s, 1940s functionalist housing in Gothenburg. And, you know, we always had the odd piece of alto furniture or a Bauhaus chair. So there was always an interest there for me. And my parents talked about it. And, you know, I'd started designing houses. You know, I drew plants as a kid. Yeah, yeah. And I enjoy doing that. And it's something I really love doing. And then, you know, you grow up and, you know, I was too busy sailing and doing other stuff you do as a teenager. So my grades simply weren't good enough to get into School of Architecture in Sweden. So when was it? When I was 22, Sweden became members of the European Union. And for me, then a whole new door opened because it meant I could go and study in Europe for free. Wow. And that was a massive kind of, you know, it was a wow moment. And I got a great, that's what I'm going to do. So we kind of thought, what language do I speak out? Nordic countries or Germany or England. It was England. So I applied to a few schools there and I was accepted. So I went straight away. And then I came here to study. And at that time, I I knew I had an interest, but I didn't know I would have any kind of aptitude for it, I suppose. But the great thing is when you have an interest, you start studying it. And the more you're studying it, the more you kind of, it just builds that interest and you just get fueled. And we had a period of a few years when I started at that School of Architecture in Portsmouth, where I had some exceptional tutors that really kind of inspired all the students and they created some great architects that are practicing today. And yeah, so university was great. I had a great time. I graduated at the top of my year and I've been very fortunate. I never really applied for a job in my life, which is, I suppose, quite rare. But after I graduated, I worked a little bit in London and I was recommended jobs by people that, you know, tutors that knew other people. And after my diploma, I went to work for my external examiner. who was from Dublin, which was a man called John Marr. He's passed away a couple of years ago, a very, very nice man. He used to work for Scott Venturi Brown and his business partner used to work for Louis Kahn and the practice was called De Black and Marr. And did very different kind of work for us. John did lots of houses and Shane did more public buildings. So I worked with John and we did houses and I worked for a very famous Irish film director designing his house in Dublin. And it was a great experience working there. And it was like Irish celebrities coming and going. And Mm. it was really a fantastic experience. And then one day I got a phone call from another one of my old tutors and he said, I'm setting up work now. He used to teach and work at the same time, but then he got so much work, so he quit teaching. So I joined him as his first employee and I worked with that practice for about eight years. And in the end, I was became a director there and that practice grew. But then when the crisis hit in 2008, 2009, it felt like it was the right time to take that step and set up. It might be odd thing to set up in a recession, but at the same time, I think the private dressing market can sometimes be quite protected from recessions in a way because, you know, the interest rates were very low here. And so if you had money, it was cheap construction as well. So private resting market seemed to be doing well. And that's how we started. And you focused on single family, high-end, custom, modern homes? Yeah, from the beginning, I suppose that wasn't so much the intention. When I set up my practice, I, I suppose I did write a business plan, but I don't 
think are quite new what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people do that. We don't have any yes. formal business training as architects very often, which is something that we'll probably talk about, about in a minute. But yeah, we started doing private houses and extensions and so on in the beginning. But I always tried to keep the bar quite high on the work I would take on. And part of the reason was for that, that I really wanted to do the one-off houses and not end up doing a garage extension and being stuck working in a local area just. And I tried to explore getting up more public work and school work and all of this. But after a while, I realized that the inquiries I kept coming in, you know, I couldn't get a school extension for a very low budget locally, but I was being asked to do fee proposals for big houses. So I thought that was the key for me. Something clicked and I said like, well, be a niche practice. If you can identify... I mean, I always read this book about Seth Godin it's called This Is Marketing. It said, you identify your smallest identifiable market. Yep. And then you try and go into that market. You don't need to sell to everyone. You just need to sell to a very few select people that want what you do. So that's something that we've really been focusing on to be a niche practice and stay relatively small. you know. And then that has just led to you know, one house leads to the other and a few awards and publications and a few books that we've been included in. It just helps to build that brand. And I think also with, when I set up, there was a major shift in kind of all the publications. There was a lot of digital publications that came out like Zine or Arc Daily. And they were crying out. They didn't have to publish two, three houses a year. They were wanted to publish two, three houses a day. Right. They opened up a market where they started to publish renderings and so on, instead of completed projects. So we invested very heavily in CGI and got the best people we could find to do photorealistic renderings. And that really, in the beginning, allowed us to create houses and get publicity that we perhaps wouldn't have got 10 years earlier. So it was just social media kicked in. And then that was always something very important to try and push your work out on social media, just to build the brand of the business. That's such a great idea to start with a portfolio of renderings. I get that question all the time from young architects who are starting their firms or even people who are more established that's been in the profession for a long time, but now they're starting a new firm and they don't know how, right? They don't have their own portfolio. Maybe they've worked for other firms and those other firms, you can't publicize that work as your own, even if it was your own. And so designing projects that are theoretical or unbuilt and publishing those and getting a reputation and creating content around it in order for search engines to find you. And it's a great idea. No, absolutely. When you don't have that portfolio, you need to create that portfolio. Chase Jarvis, a famous photographer based in Seattle, who runs Creative Live, he's got his podcasts and yep. lots of live classes. He always says that, you know, whether it's photography or, or architecture, you, you just got to build your portfolio. So what do you want to be known for? And then have that work in your portfolio. So very early on in four years after I set up, I actually decided to invest quite heavily in a little project of my own. So I decided to design something we called Superhouse. So we created a fake client and a fake brief. And we decided that we designed a house that was 2,000 square meters on the beach. And it was fantastic because you really pushed the boat out and all those social media, online publications, they ju just jumped on it and we got published worldwide. We were published in Forbes magazine and Visa's Black magazine that goes out to the Black, you know, holders and all of those really high in, in super yacht magazines, all of that. And that was fantastic. Obviously, we tried to sell the idea to some people, but 
we never got a commission directly from it. But what happened was that I had several meetings and inquired. People said someone had a site in Mauritius, someone had a site on Ibiza, someone had one in Costa Rica, and I said, oh, I want to build this. And then they said, oh, what's it going to cost and how long time it's going to take? Yeah. And I think that those rich people, they just want to buy it. They want to buy it now. I had several people that said, I'll buy it now if you have it, but I can't hang around for six years. Yeah. And we had requests from HBO to film a TV series there, for example, because they thought the renderings were real. But, you know, that was a big investment. But what happened was that it really gave us a trickle-down effect. So it then started to get inquiries. We got an inquiry directly from New Zealand that came on the back of that, for example. So it just had a trickle-down effect. We kind of, again, helped us with our social media and our marketing. Yeah, that's a great strategy. I want to go back to the idea of a niche firm. You sort of tell your story of how you've gotten there and sort of connect the dots looking back. But when you were there and you were doing all the different types of work, you know, school work and presidential work, and you realized that, you know, focusing on the work you want and only focusing on the work you want in order to attract more of the work that you want, was that sort of an intentional strategy at the time? Or was that sort of, this is the work that's coming in, I need to build a firm, so let's do that work and focus on that work. How strategic was the move to go all in on one type of architecture? It was quite strategic, actually. Of course, you've got to eat and put food on the table. Yep. So we did the odd project that we wouldn't publish, perhaps. Right. But we tried to keep the bar really high. And to be strategic, that's definitely something we do. So we stayed really small for a really long time. So when COVID hit, when was that? 2019. Uh, was it 2019? 2020. Well, yeah. the rest of the world, early 2020, late 19. 2020, yeah. So we were only still seven people then. So that had taken 10 years to get to the size of seven people. And then it went a little bit quicker. Now we're 14 today. So we go from seven to 14. That went very quickly. Yeah. And when you were seven people, it was very manageable. I could run the business myself and it wasn't too much admin or HR or IT to deal with. And then suddenly it became to 12 people and it was or something like that. And it was a different thing. I realized that's not what you, suddenly you realize you're a business, you know, and I wish I would have known that and thought about that earlier, because in the beginning I had that naive attitude that lots of architects have that we're just signing buildings. But to really think about the business, I've read so many books and I listen to so many podcasts. Yeah. Yours is one of them, of course. And that, you know, I learned so much, but then I thought, you know, it came a point where I thought like I need a little bit more help and really try and to channel the ideas and focus it. So I think we've always been quite strategic and always been quite determined knowing where we want to go. You know, I always knew where I wanted to get in that bus, but I didn't necessarily know how to get there. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate 
and offers it to you easily, accessible, and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today, the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at EntreeArchitect.com. So how did you learn that? Was it strictly from self-educating through reading books? Because you've mentioned several books, you've mentioned some podcasts, you've mentioned Creative Live and Chase Jarvis. So obviously you're interested in those things, right? Seth Godin, you talked about. Yeah. So you're doing some research. Was that how you were learning how to put all the puzzle pieces together as an architect that never had business training? I think a lot came from that. I mean, another great book I recommend is Traction by Gina Wickman. Yep, it's sitting right next to me on the floor here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just got like the formula kind of set up for you in a way. But the other thing is, you know, I think I overdosed on all of this. I used to say like every second book I read was like, I read like a book on kind of some form of development. Then I would read a novel. And I used to do every second book. And you were driving to meetings. The podcast would be on all the time, et cetera, et cetera. But it's very good to do this. And then you start seeing patterns after a while, I think. Yes. You start seeing patterns. Everyone's talking about the same thing. But it's a slight different variation. You know, it might be Brendan Bichard or whatever. And then they do it in this way. They do it in that way. But the essence is the same way. Right. And then you think like, okay, but I actually need someone to hold me accountable for this, I think. So we engaged a architectural consultancy that specializes in giving architecture advice called Archibist, actually based down in Melbourne in Australia. Yeah. And we've been working with them for two years. And the biggest difference, I think, for me is that the board level thinking that we have a board meeting every month and we actually sit down and we discuss things. We've had Ray on the show talking about that process. So yeah, actually people, if you want to, you can find and we'll put a link on the show notes if anybody wants to listen yeah. to talk about the board process. So yeah. you worked with Ray and his team and created a board. And so continue talking through that. I want to make sure that people understood that. Yeah. 
the idea, I suppose, is that, you know, even as a business owner, I've got someone above me, right? I'm responsible to my shareholders. So you've got that idea about, you know, I might be the shareholder, but I still got to be responsible to someone. And by having a board, you've just got someone holding you accountable and asking you, it's like, what happened last month? Why didn't you make a profit? What went wrong? Okay, what have you done to change that? Or how did you address your direct costs and stuff to see if you could balance that out? And just knowing your finances as well. I always thought we were pretty clued up on finances, but you know, I would say now we are actually because we have a really good financial reporting system and a budgeting system. That means that we can actually budget at the beginning of the year based on real costs. So we know like, oh, if we want to say like we want to expand with two, three people next year, we put that in our budget. And that means that I got confidence in it. I got confidence in how it's not like, I think I need to hire because I think I can't manage. You can actually plan it in and you can plan in the money for it. I know the money is there and it's set aside for it. And you know each month what numbers we need to hit or you know like how much we need to find to hit the budget that year. And all of that has just meant that we address it as a completely different level business-wise. And that's led to us also rethinking just about how we run the business and how we structure fees, appointment, and just how we kind of behave as individuals in the business ensuring that we are a profitable business. Yeah, the focus and the attention on business, it's critical to the rest of it. The way that you can design the architecture you're designing, right? The portfolio that you now have at Strom Architects is directly related to the success of your business. That you can create those renderings and do all the promotion and do lots of marketing. But if the rest of it isn't there, Right. If the money's not there or the structure isn't there or the systems aren't there, you can't deliver on any of that. So you might get a whole bunch of inquiries, but maybe you can't execute on those. Or if you're struggling to make sure that the bills are paid, you're not focused on designing your best work or serving your client. And then you have unhappy clients. Absolutely. And I think that most architects have probably got a phone call from an angry client saying that you're not behaving or you're cost me money, you know, you've been late with this or whatever. And that's kind of a big wake-up call, I think, when you get those phone calls from a client at times. Some people are probably lucky never to have them, but there is certainly, for me at least, I'd like to think of it, it's almost like we've spent a lot of time in the last two years setting up systems and designing our own system. We call it the Strom way. And we use a lot of on monday.com, you know, if you know, Monday boards and so on. Yep. So we just got a template now and literally how we run our projects and every single stage and what we do and what we don't do and what actually is part of our fee. And then how we structure our fees. And that's continually developing in a different ways. And somehow I think that we architects, we, you know, we said like, oh yeah, I've got a good fee for this. I can spend a thousand hours on this. And we, we might even spend, you know, 950 on it when we go out to tender. And suddenly we spend 1500 hours by the time we go on site. So there's a lot of kind of, thinking about how you structure your fees. And, you know, we used to work on fixed fees and we just used to eat a lot of humble pie a lot of the time, I think, because we agreed to this and we prided ourselves. So it was like, oh, no, no, we're going to deliver on those hours. And it was just lots of, you know, sometimes over time that covered that. And it's not a sustainable model, I think. But building that brand as well, you're obviously going to work harder for it in the beginning when you are more established. You can say like, no, this is my bottom line. This is what it is. And I... I think that we are much in a better, stronger position to demand that now and people, they accept it. But that's a big learning curve. 
Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. So it sounds like that you have built the systems, your business is running pretty much the way you'd like it to run. You have great work. What does your plan look like? What does your future look like? What does Strom Architects look like in the next three to five years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for us, what has changed in the last three to five years is that we are getting a lot more international inquiries, a lot more international projects. So we've done a couple of projects in Stockholm and we got another one on site in south of Sweden. We're doing a project in Finland, we're working in Turkey, we finished a house in Barcelona. We're doing two projects in the States, one in Virginia, one in Rhode Island. We're doing a scheme of a few houses, like a little development in Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean. So we are looking at several different countries at the moment. We're doing competitions in the Middle East as well. So that has really changed for us how we have a more international reach. I would say at the moment, probably 40% of our revenue is coming from overseas. And that's turned up some really interesting ways of thinking about how we work on how we work with an executive architect. And I think that the challenge is that because we are so detail-orientated that we always thought, oh, we can do it like a very detailed technical design intent and we can hand it over to a local executive architect. But that's proven very difficult. So we're really learning that we have to stay much more involved throughout the entire process and just really be there to guide that whole thing and what's important and how it works. So that's a big learning curve for us at the moment. And the other thing that we see a lot of development in, for example, we just got building permit for six houses on Turks and Caicos. And it's those schemes that have more than one unit. It's still one-off houses. We've done a scheme in Turkey with six houses. And we've just been asked to do a competition in the Middle East for a scheme of 60 houses. And that's very nice because you're starting to get a bit of volume on it. So you've got different house types and you can start doing a little bit of repetition. And that just means that we're seeing a expansion into more of the hospitality kind of stuff. And I can see the hotels and resorts being part of that. And it's an organic growth. And I really like that because that's based on something. It's based on reputation. It's very closely linked. And that means that you don't have to go out and do heavy investment and so on. Right. It comes organically and it feels like a natural growth. I've seen other architects do that same kind of trajectory, but you know, 10, 15 years ahead of us, perhaps. So it follows that natural progression, which I think is lovely. Yeah, that's very exciting. So you said that your team now is 14? Yeah. So how large does the firm get in your mind as you grow in the next three to five years to do all this type of work where potentially it expands into other markets? Do you have a sort of a projection on how big you might want to get? Yeah, I think at the moment we could benefit from being a little bit bigger, but we could, of course, have the work to support that. I think 14 is a difficult size to be as an architect's practice because we can get in some fairly substantial one-off houses and they can swallow three to four people for six to eight months producing all the construction documents. And that means that it almost cripples the office sometimes because it becomes so resource heavy and then suddenly it just stops. And then you've got to move that resource onto something else. So if you had a slightly bigger workload and you were perhaps we were 18 to 20 people, it would be much better to balance out those imbalances in the workload and the workflow. But I think that we probably have a max size of, say, 25 people. After that, I don't think we want to get any bigger than that. I think a lot of practices work really well at 8 to 
25. Mm-hmm. That's a structure where you still, you can handle those projects, but don't get into the really big commercial stuff. So I think the Frost, that's a good size. And that also sees us probably, we provide interior design for most of our houses. And I think that you can probably see us having a couple of interior designers. At the moment, we do it all ourselves as architects. But I can see us having some interior architects, interior designers working with us as well, which would really help us and allow us to have that offering for for clients. Are you involved in design on every project? Yes. Yeah. How does that change when you go to 25? Or does it? It's already changed. It's already changed. At the moment, when a project first comes, I'm very heavily involved in the beginning. And some projects, they almost, it sounds ridiculous, but they just come to you. You can just speak to a client, you can stand on the site and you can just picture it. Mm-hmm. And it very often happens. You spend a day with the client and for example, we recently doing this project in Finland at the moment and I spent a whole day with the client on site when we were out swimming and going around the boats on the sea and stuff and had lunch, drinking wine. Absolutely fantastic people. And you just kind of get to feel for people and you, you talk to them what's important to them and what they want and all of that. You really, what you're doing is you, all the time you're just like trying to understand what the brief is through conversation. And then suddenly you can kind of picture it from here. You see what they're saying, what they're saying. And based on all your 20 years or 25 years of experience, whatever it is, you kind of just go, you can see it. And in a way, it's not heavily concept and process driven, but you can post-rationalize it. You can post-analyze it, everything. So it isn't just something that's downloaded from above. It is based on all of that experience. All the concept, it is there. But I couldn't have done that 15 years ago. Right. But now you can do that. So some projects you can sit down and you can just you know put a pen to paper and you can do some very quick concept sketches and you can get the project architect involved and it just flows super easy. Sometimes it's really hard to get the designs out and you have to work on it really, really hard. You know, sometimes if you have a site with lots of constraints, it can sometimes be very easy to design because there's so many constraints that it kind of gives you much narrower margins to play with. But sometimes you have a completely open brief. Once we had an open brief, the client said, oh, well, you're similar age to me and we've got similar age kids. So do the house you'd like to design or live in, (laughs) which I did. That's a dream project. Well, that's one of the few pros we've actually been fired from. So, <laughs> so not such a dream. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't good. So yeah. So I think that we need to drill down the brief a little bit more. But yeah. So I think that I'm involved in all projects in design, and I think that what changes as, as you grow now is that having a managing director, she keeps putting all these meetings, keeps popping up in my diary all the time. So oh, design review, design review, design review. Yeah. So there's a lot of design reviews and internal meetings and crits that go on all the time. And it's a different way of working, but I think that so many people in the office, they've been there quite a long time and they're really understanding what we do and they buy into it. So they can really kind of understand what is required in the situation. You know, I think we call it like a strong house or what would people, you know, yeah. it becomes a language that people understand and they can kind of work within that. And then we just have to nudge it in the right direction. Yeah. And that's part about having those systems as well. It's like if we have good tram lines, you know, if I can say that these are the tram lines, and then people can have freedom within them, and then they have more autonomy. Yeah. Uh, to know that they're not going to go and do something, it's not going to come out looking like a Saadid building afterwards. You know. So. Yeah. That's how we work, and for us, it works really well. So I think it would work up to a certain size. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because that's a difficult process at that point, right? Where you get to the point where it's the firm is too big for you to design every project that you may be involved in every design more of as a creative director or chief, you know, creative officer, but you have other people who are designing them, right? They're coming to you and saying, here's the initial concept. And then you are involved in sort of making it, you know, better rather than creating it from scratch. Yeah. So sometimes that can be developed, you know, almost up to the planning stage and and actually producing drawings. But in all honesty, you know, I love to sit and play around in SketchUp and in 3D. So I design very much in SketchUp. I use it as a sketch tool and I just bash things about. It's not very accurate or it's not exactly well modeled very often, but it gives you a very quick feel of testing ideas and so on. And then someone else will very often take that and put the cat lines in the right place and put the 3D to the right levels and so on. So, you know, it's also like, it's a natural progression as you grow older as an architect, I think. I've just turned 50 a few weeks ago and I don't want to be a project architect anymore, you know? Yeah. I can't have all of that in my head anymore. I've done it. I've been there. And now it's kind of, as growing as a business as well as enabled me, as I said, to hire a managing director, which means that I now have more time to do design direction. And the thing that really suffered a couple of years ago was that I didn't have enough time to go and see the clients. And everyone, the clients would say to the project architect, where is Magnus? Right. And for me, this is an opportunity to reconnect again with, with the client and go and show my face a little more and be involved in those conversations to, to make them feel looked after. I think that's very important. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting story and to follow your progress and to see where you are today and, and to see where you're going in the future because it's going to be exciting to see how you grow from here to there. We're looking forward to it. I'll follow your progress. Thank you. What would you say as we wrap things up? You know, you've built this firm from scratch. You know, you've worked for other firms and you've seen what other firms do. And then you built this firm and you've learned a lot. You've built a business structure that works. What would you say is one thing that you would say to a small firm architect who may be listening right now that they can do right now today to build a better business for them tomorrow? I should specialize. That would be my number one. If you can specialize, you can say to a client, come to me because I know this so much more. This is what I do. This is my field of expertise. Like those people, people will trust you because you'll have more knowledge than someone else that does. You know, if you do five projects that are five different kind of projects, you do five projects of the same, you're going to say like, well, I've done this five times rather than just one time, yeah. even if you might have done the same amount of project. That's the number one. And the second one, I think that young architects also should do is go and learn about business. Don't be afraid of asking people for help and, you know, think about a business plan and understand the numbers. His name is Magnus Strom. Strom Architects is the firm. You can check him out at stromarchitects.com. We'll have a link to that on the show notes. Magnus, thank you for coming by and sharing your story, sharing some of the- Thank you very much, Mark. The business behind the firm. The work that you do is so inspiring and the story behind the architecture that we all see is a fascinating story. So thank you for coming by and sharing the story and coming by and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Mark. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating Write a quick review and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. 
by sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. 
there is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.